I get many letters from you parents about your children. Woodrow Wilson spoke those words. Before he was president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson was president of Princeton University. And he met with a group of parents concerning their children while he was at the university there. And he told them, I get many letters from you parents about your children. You want to know why we people up here in Princeton can't make more out of them and do more for them? Let me tell you the reason we can't. It may shock you just a little. I'm not trying to be rude. The reason is that they are your sons. Reared in your homes. Blood of your blood. Bone of your bone. They have absorbed the ideals of your homes. You have formed and fashioned them. They are your sons. In those malleable, moldable years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint upon them. Words of wisdom from President Wilson. In those malleable, moldable years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint, your imprint upon them. Are we aware of that? Are we? That we are, in fact, leaving an imprint for good or, or for not so good on our children. And, and are we aware that a, a part of that imprint is a spiritual imprint? A spiritual imprint. A few years ago, uh, Miss Lynn showed me this uh, illustration about spiritual imprints. Some of you have seen it. This is a good reminder. We like to keep our dentists in business at this church. What we're looking at is 3,040 gumballs. That's what we're looking at. Right? Each gumball represents... And an hour, an hour, an hour, an opportunity to imprint, influence upon the lives of our children. Yellow gumballs, there's 40 of these here. These represent the number of hours, on average, that your child will spend with your children's minister here, your student minister, your child's small group leader, Sunday school teacher, someone from the church here. About 40. If you just took everybody and just made a general average, 40 hours in one year. 3,000 hours are what they have with you, parents, you know? When, you, when, you, when we're done sleeping and we're done schooling and homeworking, about, about the course of a year, we're talking about 3,000. Can you guess who has greater potential for spiritual impact and, and to spiritually imprint the lives and the hearts of our children? You, you know, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Look, look. The fact of the matter is, 
Moms and dads, we are the most powerful, influential children's slash student minister in our child's lives. We are. And so, and so, what kind of an imprint are we leaving? What kind of an impact are we having? Let me put it this way. Does your child want to be the kind of Christian you are? Does your child want to be the kind of Christian you are? I mean, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, someone will ask our children. They will. They will. One of these days, your child will be asked, what did faith look like in your family of origin? What did faith look like? What did Christianity look like in your family? Someone's going to ask your child that. And if the answer that they give is solely, solely, now, if it's solely, well, they took us to church on Sunday morning. Even if they did that faithfully, even if they did that consistently, my concern, my fear is that if that's just kind of all that's said, then my concern is that uh, we will find children who have a faith that is thin, tepid, and lacking. Because showing up in a religious place, even consistently, is not Christianity, is it? Well, what is? What is the quality of faith that God wants us to to bequeath to our children? That's what I want to talk about today. I want to look at some verses that talk about authentic Christianity, high-definition Christianity, Christianity that takes itself seriously, Christianity that is valuable enough to pass on from generation to generation to generation. And I just want to, just want to look at, at at least at one dimension of that this morning here. And it's found in a verse, two verses, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And uh, you can, if you wanted to look at your pew Bibles, your church Bibles, that's on page 854 of your church Bibles. You can also glance up here at the screen. You see the verses in your outline. James, James chapter 1 has a very, very accurate descriptor of clarifying high-definition Christianity. James says, if anyone thinks he's religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. And then here we go. Verse 27. Here it is. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep keep oneself unstained from the world. James 1, 27. Did you see that word religion there at the beginning of verse 27? Uh, what do you think of the word religion? What comes to your mind? What, what, what do you think of? Do you think of Sunday morning church? Do you think of going to a sacred-looking place and praying, singing, hearing a God talk? Do you think of uh, stained glass windows? Do you think of a family Bible on a coffee table? When someone says, she's religious. What picture comes to your mind there? Sometimes the word religion gets a bad rap because... People think of religion as just a list of rule-keeping or legalism. But here, James actually uses the word religion. Religion. It has to do with someone who exercises their faith conscientiously. Conscientious Christianity. Someone who takes their faith seriously enough to actually practice it. 
James defines this kind of faith, this kind of religion, this kind of real Christianity, this kind of high-definition Christianity, this kind of pure and undefiled Christianity as this. James says that such faith is about helping helpless people. Helping helpless people, meeting the needs of those who cannot meet their own. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a kind of faith that is about self-sacrifice. He's talking about the kind of faith that, it, that focuses on others, other-centered living so that others' needs will be met, especially those who are unable to take care of themselves. Yeah. That's the kind of faith God wants us to practice. And yet at the same time, when we hear this kind of instruction and command... When we hear this, then there, you know, I can hear questions. I can hear questions like, well, how can I help if I'm struggling? Huh? How can I look after the helpless when I feel helpless? That's a good question. It's a fair question. It's a question that those Christians in James chapter 1 first heard and thought about. And it's a issue that I think James addresses here earlier on. I mean, the Christians who heard James say what he said in 127 also heard James say, look up at chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. These Christians here were facing a faith-based trial. They were being persecuted for what they believed about Jesus Christ. And sometimes God's people feel like that their life situation prevents them from helping those who hurt. And so they tend to want to kind of back off. I'll wait till I'm 100% cured before I go help people. And You saw when you came in the foyer here this morning the display about Compassion International. It's currently led by a gentleman named Wes Stafford. Um, he's written an excellent book about children, too small to ignore. And it's about his life, and it's about his ministry with uh, Compassion International. Uh, interestingly enough, West Stafford was a, a missionary's kid. And when he was growing up, uh, he was sent to a denominational boarding school while his parents served in the field. And I honestly don't know how much this is done today. I don't sense that it's done as much as it was in previous generations. But actually, missionaries, they're, they're, they would be separated from their children while they were serving in the field. And so he was sent to a denominational boarding school while his parents served. And tragically, some of the teachers at the boarding school where he attended were physically abusive, even to the point of bruising. And, and, and then, uh, if that weren't, you know, demonic enough, uh, to cover up their abusive behavior, some instructors would stop the physical abuse to allow time for the bruises to heal before the children went back to see their parents. That was West Stafford's upbringing. And then the teachers would say this to the kids. Listen to this. The teachers would say, if you tell your parents what's going on, they're going to have to leave the mission field, and if they have to leave the mission field, people will go to hell because of you. Perverted, totally perverted, mind-boggling, unbelievable. You know, and how in the world could God allow such evil? How could he use such evil in a redemptive way? 
And yet, Wes Stafford's life is kind of an example of that. And in the face of helplessness here in James chapter 1, James does not say to these believers, well, oh, just pray more and it'll go away. He speaks frankly. It may may not go away. You're going to have to endure this. You're going to have to persevere through this. James recognizes the mystery of suffering. You may not have the foggiest clue why all of this is going on. And if that's the case, verse 5, ask God. Be confident and trusting. God will give you the insight you need to persevere through, through this trial. And whatever you do, don't, you know, keep depending on God and don't depend on stuff. Don't depend on your wealth. That's what verses 9 through 11 are about. And then, and then James goes on to tell these suffering Christians, resist blaming God. Don't give in the to that temptation and even make matters worse, even in a trial, God can take difficulty and use it in a redemptive way because he is, he is our loving Father and all of his gifts are good and perfect. That's the kind of heavenly Father he is, verses 12 to 15. And then James says, refuse to be angry. You know, don't let your heart well up with anger and bitterness and resentment. Instead, you make a decision to, to have God's word alive in your heart so that anger and resentment over this trial won't fester or, pass, or prevent you from living the way God wants, you see? There, there's all sorts of wrong ways to respond when you're afflicted. You can play the victim. You can, you can be resentful. You can get angry. Or you can just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about your trial. Or, or here we go, verse 27, you can demonstrate your confident trust in God by helping the helpless even in your hurt. Somehow, in his mystery and in his sovereignty, God used the fire of West Stafford's twisted upbringing to refine him to the point where he was he's able to have a pure and undefiled faith. And I think that's what we see here in James 1. And so the broader message is this. God wants his people to help the helpless even when they hurt. Especially when they hurt. And why? Because when we do, we, we show our children what high-definition, credible, conscientious Christianity looks like when we do that. We do. Some of us are experiencing a difficult season right now. I've prayed with you. Difficulty in the economy has meant you're out of work or your, your finances have been cut You're having a hard time making ends meet. You know, our children, it is helpful if they hear that times are tight. It's helpful. It is. What's not helpful is for our children to see faithless, hand-wringing, worrying, fretting, moody parents. We need to be able, even financially strangling times, to show our children that God is in control and, and we will trust him. And one way that we show that we trust him is by helping the helpless. I, I think that's why James goes on to say in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, well, go, I wish you well, be warm, well fed, but does nothing about meeting the physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. See? Somehow, in God's mysterious sovereignty, he uses tragedy and inexcusable evil, and he transforms it redemptively into the love of Christ. That's high-definition Christianity. 
And that's what needs to be practiced. And that's what has been practiced around here, you know? I see that. Uh, uh, I see that through the selflessness of ministries like our Empty Arms Ministry, which is a ministry to mothers who have lost children. There are mothers who could not come up here this morning uh, because they've stood at the graveside of their children. And that ministry is led by saints in our church family. They've walked that path. And they just don't know suffering academically or intellectually. They've walked through the fire. And they understand. And they get it. And they sympathize. And they have visited those who hurt. They visit. You see that word there, visit? It's a great word. To visit orphans and widows in their distress or in their affliction. That's the same word that the gospel writer Luke uses in Luke 7, 16. When Jesus raised this young man to life and his mother, a widow at Nain. The people saw this and they said, God has visited us. God has visited us. So that's what we're looking at here is you're visiting orphans and widows, and we're not just talking about socializing with them. We're not just talking about seeing them. We're talking about seeing to them, and that's the gospel. The gospel is that our gracious, pure, and unpolluted God visited this planet. He put on flesh. He came to help the helpless, to those who had no strength, and he compassionately suffered on the cross for our disobedience to bring us home to him. He helped us in our distress, and when we act in that way, we walk his path, and that's what he wants. He wants us to walk his path by helping the helpless, even when we hurt, because that's what he did. And, and we don't help the helpless in order to get saved. We help the helpless because that's what saved people do. So today, you came in and you saw this display about Compassion International. West Stafford wrote, can you imagine the, the outcry if September 11th occurred on a daily basis? Only this time it was in Chicago, the next time Los Angeles, the next time Bangkok, the next time London. The fact is, he says, every day, every day in the world, 30,000 children under the age of five are taken because they're not wanted. And, they, and, and children on their own, children, children can't protest on Capitol Hill. They have no political pull. They, they don't hold marches on their own. They need advocates, and they need encouragers. And, and their spirits are a lot like Play-Doh when they're young. See, And at first it takes very little effort to make that impression, but as time goes by, the clay hardens, huh? And researchers tell us that if a person has not accepted Christ by the time they're 21, there's about a 23% chance that they're going to. The time is now. And so we have an opportunity to make a difference, to not just feel compassionately, but to act on it. And uh, that's what Jesus did. Every time he felt compassion, he acted on it. He did something. He healed. He cured. He touched a leper. He didn't just feel pity. He acted. And we have an opportunity to act. We do. And uh, there's information out at the brochure, uh, in a brochure out at the tables. You have an opportunity to begin a relationship 
And it's, yeah, it's 32 bucks a month. That's what it is. And, uh, I, you know, when I hear that and I think about this ministry and other ministries, my mind kind of just almost short circuits because I'm thinking, okay, we've got so many needs. There's so many needs. And, and there's, there's so many children. And, uh, you know, I've only got five loaves and two fish like that little boy who brought it to Jesus. Uh, what, what is that? And I don't even know that I'm going to be able to make and keep a 32 dollar a month commitment I mean, what should I do then and plus there's church planting efforts across the country and there's other orphan care issues to consider there's salt and light here in town there's restoration urban ministry and oh by the way I'd kind of like to fix up my own home too you know and uh, I've got leaky pipes and the paint's chipping on my garage and and yeah the church family here needs help as well I mean they don't give us this electricity you know we have to pay for it and uh, you know it just seems like one more thing you know, how can I handle it all? And the answer is you can't handle it all. You can't. You can't. Not even compassion can. You think the faces of the kids, you think that's all the kids that are out there? See, they have to choose too. All of us do. They have, to, they have to choose between certain ages and family circumstances, you know? But here's what's helped me. So someone once uh, said, to me, Randy, long-term thinking, long-term thinking improves short-term decision-making. Long-term thinking improves short-term decision-making. When you have a clear idea of what's really important to you in the long term, then you can make better decisions about your priorities in the short term, you see? And there, there's always going to be urgent stuff, but when you focus on the important, then you know which urgent things to answer to. And that may mean, in this case, I can, I can make some spending decisions about the discretionary things in my life that I could do without. Like, you know, is it dry cleaning? Is it magazine subscriptions? Do I, can I bring lunch to work a few more times? Can I cost share a compassion child with someone else? Our kids are doing that. Isn't that wonderful upstairs? Huh? What about my small group? And, and, and you know what? And just so you know this, this is, I thank God for this. Uh, this is such good news. Did you, did you know the Lord supports a hundred children through this church family from compassion? Huh? Just, that's, and that's, that's, that's not money that goes through the offering plate system here. That's you at home, you and God, praying, writing out a check, sending it to this ministry a hundred children are supported through your selflessness. Helping the helpless. It, you know, it does involve giving money. And, and you know what? It will certainly involve giving time, investing time. Uh, I know that there are children in our church family right here and right now who need love and support and the gift of time. And when I hear stories, when I hear the, the good gossip in the hall about families who are looking after other families' kids and small groups who are looking after other children. When I hear that, I just thank God that I'm allowed to be here because that's a, that's a significant investment of time. That's high-definition Christianity. That's what we're looking at here. And, 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 and there are other opportunities. Uh, in, uh, we have uh, Jeff Hunt with Mission 180, tutoring uh, students, we, we have, uh, did you see the excellent article about real life teen mission in the News Gazette yesterday 
uh, Michelle Maroon and Laura Altoff uh, uh, were spoken of, and Michelle was interviewed uh, in that article. It was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful ministry. Uh, there's tutoring opportunities at Restoration Urban Ministries. There's food and clothing distribution at Salt and Light. Uh, and, and what I'm saying is that these are opportunities to involve our children. I'm not just talking about us as parents. The whole point is teaching our children compassion and partnering with them and bringing them alongside and showing them what Jesus looks like to our world. Next fall, when we do our weekend of service, October 17th and 18th, where we leave the building and the entire weekend we go meet needs with love, we are specifically designing and creating some family-friendly projects because we want our children to be involved, okay? There's plenty of opportunities. And what needs to happen is to trust that God can take what little we have, just as Jesus did with that little boy's lunch, and feed far more than we can ask or imagine. I don't know what's in your hand. You know. Just give it to God, and he'll make it immeasurably more. Do we really believe we can outgive him? And what we'll find out when we give him our lunch, we'll realize that, you know what, we often have more resources than we think we do. We do. We really do. You know, a third of all 13-year-olds in our culture have cell phones, and 4% of their brothers and sisters who are 10 have them. Did you know we spend more for garbage bags in the U.S. than 90 of the world's 210 countries spend for everything? Huh? So the answer is not feeling guilty for what we have and then doing nothing. The answer is putting our faith to work to help the helpless as a family, taking our children and showing them what it looks like to be Jesus to our community, okay? Um, What's your plan to do that? Can I give you some questions, some take-home questions? The back of your outline here, uh, I've got some questions that I want you to ask. I want you to ask. I want you to plan for some homework here. The first is this. Are we scheduling family time for acts of mercy and compassion? It's just not going to happen automatically. We've got to plan for it, right? Are our calendars too filled with leisure and recreational activities that we lack margin for serving and teaching and together having opportunities? Uh, what if we fasted from eating out or some other family expense and then give that money anonymously, anonymous generosity to someone in need? What if, what if we did that, huh? Is there a compassion trip? Is there a mission trip that we could take as a family? That's what delights me so much when I see families uh, from our church who are like going to the Dominican or, or, they're, or, or we're traveling to Peru and we're, we're serving together as a family to meet needs with love. Using vacation time for missions trips together. That someone, someone said this. This is, this, this is challenging. Traveling with your child to the third world is expensive, but it may be more important to them than tennis lessons. <laughs> okay. Get them involved. And, and you say, well, I, you know, I don't know that I really can go to Peru or the Dominican. Okay, can you go to Anthony Drive? See, there's the number for salt and light. Okay, can you do that? What, what, about, what about FCA? Uh, there's the phone number for that. Uh, Write down October 17th and 18th this weekend. Get it planned on your calendar. Cancel everything else. Plan for that so you can serve with your family. All right? 
And yes, as you go out into the foyer today, you'll see the faces of some of our children that we've just prayed over here, but you'll also see some of the faces of children in third world countries. And if God is putting it on your heart to start a relationship, then pick a child and support them and write to them. Do something. If your children don't see it, they won't do it. All right? President Wilson said, in those malleable, moldable years of their lives, you have forever left your imprint on them. And I want to close with this verse from James chapter 1, verse 22. Stand with me as I show you this verse. And let's just say it together, okay? Here we go, on three. One, two, three. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. One more time. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We've talked about it. You've heard it. Now go do it. You're dismissed.